Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad, to learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Fusion. Joined by Anna Shemansky and Jordan Weissman. Hey, everyone. And this week, we're going to talk about three stories I don't know what to think about. I don't really have fully formed opinions on these things. Well, maybe the first one. Um, We're going to talk about Huawei, which is this Chinese telecommunications giant. And Americans don't seem to want to use their incredibly well-priced products for reasons we will go into. We are going to talk about iPhones and whether the children are addicted to them and what that means for Apple, which is a large company you might have heard of. Um, We are going to talk in the Slate Plus segment about the most interesting question of the week, which is the relative merits of Manhattans and old fashions. Yep. Um, Felix and I are just going to duke it out. uh, Which, um, if you don't have Slate Plus, the TLDR is Jordan Weissman is wrong. Um, But first, we are going to talk about Davos. I know it's a little bit early to talk about Davos. Yeah, we haven't gotten to our our annual Davos edition yet. Usually Um, we only talk about it once a year. We are going to have an annual Davos edition. I have talked to Jacob Weisberg, the Slate chairman, who is going to be in Davos, and he is going to book out the Davos podcasting studio, and we are going to talk to him live from Davos, and we're going to hear all about what's been going on in Davos. But the fact is that we already know what he's going to say, which is that the only thing that anyone can talk about will be Trump. Yep. And that was probably true even before the news of this week, but it's even more true now because the quite astonishing news of the week is that Donald Trump is going to be there. Not just going to be there. He's taking like a 15-person delegation to Davos. The entourage. The entire West Wing is basically (laughs) heading to the mountains in Switzerland. Including Steve Mnuchin, his Treasury Secretary, who went on the record saying, I don't think it's full of globalists. It's not a globalist (laughs) hangout. You know, I, I am not a Mnuchin fan, but his willingness just to stare into a camera and lie is sometimes kind of amusing, especially just bald faced lies like that. Job requirement in this administration. So, so, um, I wrote two years ago that if Donald Trump ever went to Davos, he would completely suck the air out of every room that he wasn't in. He'd be this huge Davos celebrity. Uh, but that this was a completely silly thought experiment because there's no way it would ever happen. Um, so I needed to ask myself upon seeing this news, like, why on earth is he doing this? So, okay, I have two theories personally right now. Um, 
one is that the, and th- this was kind of something I was talking over with our politics editor, Reed Pillifant, which is that this is sort of just a giant fuck you from Gary Cohn and Mnuchin to Steve Bannon on his way out the door. Steve Bannon was like the anti-globalist heart of the Trump administration. And this Davos thing was announced like two days after Bannon was like excommunicated from Trump world over. Uh, oh yeah. So I think there's some truth in this, in the, it is Almost certain to me that Mnuchin and Cohn and maybe a couple of other top Trump aides really did want to go to Davos. And it's quite common to see the U.S. Treasury Secretary and the National Economic Advisor in Davos. Um, But for obvious reasons, they couldn't go if Trump wasn't going. And so because there's normally someone like that in Davos, it's kind of, and because uniquely under Trump, it's basically impossible for them to go because everyone's going to be like, why is this globalist cuck going to Davos when, you know, Trump stands against everything? The only way that they can have the cover to go is if Trump goes himself. So I feel like they were pushing Trump. I feel like almost certainly. But then I think there's also... Another possible explanation, which, um, you know, ties back to some of the things we've discussed previously during our Davos episodes, which is maybe they actually want to get some work done there, right? Like Davos actually does provide these sort well, of Kona bath- Mnuchin. Yeah. Yeah. Like some, there may, this, you know, it, diplomacy is very hard for the Trump administration, if you've noticed. They're so not the greatest is, at it. And yeah. this may give them some cover to go and get some quiet meetings done without having to announce a big exactly. and the thing one, beforehand. The name which really sprang to mind for me was Theresa May. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, we found out this week, another thing we found out this week was that the long-awaited official visit of Donald Trump to the UK is not going to happen. He's blaming something about the embassy, which is completely insane. Um but the fact is, it's really hard politically for Trump to visit the UK. It's also pretty hard politically for Theresa May to visit the US. And so if he wants to talk to her, you know, in person, um, it's actually not that easy to make happen. But if they happen to just bump into each other in a hotel suite in Davos, like there's a whole bunch of quiet like summit level meetings which can happen which would be very politically fraught to make happen otherwise right and also this gives trump the opportunity to make ridiculous speeches where he criticizes everything that supposedly davos represents at the same time that many people in his administration are probably going on and having those meetings so he's like yeah the stephen miller types are going to love the opportunity to get him to give a full-throated, unilateralist American first speech in front of all the globalists. I mean, they're just going to be loving that. Yeah, I agree. This is going to be, he's going to get to be the skunk at the garden party, which is kind of the role he's most comfortable in. Although I will say it's going to be interesting to see how he interacts with the other gazillionaires there Mm -hmm. or the actual gazillionaires. Right, right. Because there's always this weird thing about Trump's desire to be loved and to have the approval of the elite. And so I'm wondering how he's, you know, are we going to see him trying to get Bill Gates to pay attention to him? I don't know. So, I mean, it's an interesting question because one of the things which I've noticed about Davos over the years, the, the big heads of state, um, Germany, UK, Japan, China, 
U.S., which is only, as to my knowledge, ever happened once before this one. That there's only one time that the U.S. president has ever gone, a sitting U.S. president has gone to Davos, and that was Bill Clinton yeah, in two thousand. Um, and that was at the very, very end of his eight years when he was sort of like lame ducky and he's like, I can do what I like. And transitioning into Davos, man. Yes. That was yeah. like him coming out of his cocoon and becoming the new Clinton. But but also there were good reasons for that historically, which was that Davos always coincided with the State of the Union. And then for various reasons, it doesn't this year. So it's logistically much more possible than it used to be. But in any case, those heads of state almost never in my knowledge, now my knowledge is limited, there might well be like gatherings I don't know about, but in my knowledge, they don't actually hobnob in those billionaire parties and really take part in the um, sort of the the broader general Davosy. They they come in and they have meetings with other governments and they'll maybe have a meeting with Klaus Schwab or something. I I don't see them doing much broader interacting. I don't know. It'll be interesting to see whether, you know, this is Trump's opportunity to take a meeting with Jamie Dimon. Right. Because I think fundamentally, Trump is obviously in many, many ways very different than past presidents. But partly is he only respects billionaires. He only respects money. So it seems like he would be much more apt to want to hang out with the other plutocrats as opposed to actual world leaders. Yeah, I mean... Lord knows he doesn't like most of them. <laughs> like, how many European leaders, this, except for sort of Theresa May? I mean, and even then, not really. Yeah, yeah, like what? Who he actually has any affinity for? It's it's hard as well, simply for security reasons. Yeah. Um, Bill Clinton was famous for basically overriding his security detail and and charming around in Davos with people that the Secret Service would really not very happy for him, you know, hadn't really been cleared. Um, And for all that there are mental detectors everywhere, I suspect that Trump's um, two two aspects of Trump, one, his like general low-level paranoia, and two, his germ phobia (laughs) are going to combine to mean that he doesn't really spend much time sort of schmoozing that he's going to want to stay within his secret service protective bubble so i have a question for you felix as a experienced davoser how good are they at keeping leaks from coming out like how how hush hush is everything especially during these kind of mid-level and and behind closed doors meetings are we going to actually find out what the entire west wing was there to do by the end of davos or do you think it's all going to be kind of uh it's all going to be kept quiet uh, to my knowledge, I've I've never seen an Igwell leak, and um and you know so they're they're pretty good at not leaking. Um, Igwell, for those of you who um, maybe forget previous Davos episodes or maybe we've never talked about it, is my favorite um, acronym in Davos. It stands for Informal Gathering of World Economic Leaders. <laughs> oh wow! And it's like. <laughs> It's like the ultra-exclusive like Davos. Down the Igwell with him. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to throw Jamie down, Diamond down, down the, the Igwell. You basically, you basically need to be a G7 finance minister to get into it. Um, <laughs> and it's, it's famously a productive um, and very high-level meeting. And it really doesn't leak that much. Huh. Yeah. I mean, its very existence is kind of like people know that it exists, but like no one has ever sort of formally come out and said, "Oh yes, we went we went to an Igwell meeting in Davos." Hmm, so interesting. I, I I'm also curious how 
much Trump is going to be protected from potential um, questions he wouldn't want to have to answer or protests. Like, how good is Davos at that in terms of protecting their people? So I guess. about, I want to say, 10 years ago-ish, um, a few brave souls attempted a large-scale protest in Davos, and they started skiing down the mountain, and they got <laughs> met by water cannon. <laughs> in like minus 23 weather (laughs) and since then weirdly there hasn't been a lot of large scale protests no more skiing protesters (laughs) that's so brutal that seems a bit excessive Um, a water cannon yeah Wow, I was I was gonna be like, oh yeah, and at the bottom of the hill there are a bunch of you know Swiss guards with massive guns, but right. no, that's actually much <laughs> much worse. All right, cool. So yeah, you, he's not going to see much in the way of protesters. There'll be a few scattered protests, which I can guarantee you he won't see. Um, Trump will take this as a sign of how much everybody loves him there, right. of course, cause... and and he will absolutely not face critical questioning. Um, he probably won't face any questioning except for questions from Klaus Schwab, who is famously the most softball interviewer in the history of softball interviewers. So, um, yeah, but that could kind of confound Trump. Yes. <laughs> like, because if he just gives him room to hang himself, like, you know, Trump will take it. Yes. Like, he'll take all of that rope. So, I, I doubt, I mean, it is entirely possible these things do happen that, um, that he, that, that a few what's known as media leaders, um, such as our very own Jake Weisberg, might find themselves invited into a Trump press conference. Um, but I doubt it. This podcast is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Let's face it, sometimes multitasking can be overwhelming. Like when your favorite podcast is playing and the person next to you is talking and your car fan is blasting. All while you're trying to find the perfect parking spot. But then again, sometimes multitasking is easy, like quoting with Progressive Insurance. They do the hard work of comparing rates so you can find a great rate that works for you, even if it's not with them. Give their nifty comparison tool a try and you might just find getting the rate and coverage you deserve is easy. All you need to do is visit Progressive's website to get a quote with all the coverages you want like comprehensive and collision coverage or personal injury protection. Then you'll see Progressive's direct rate and their tool will provide options from other companies all lined up and ready to compare. So it's simple to choose the rate and coverages you like. Press play on comparing auto rates. Quote at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Let's talk about Huawei. Yes, speaking of security. <laughs> I, w- I just got back. The reason if I apologize to all of you if I was a bit subdued or cranky last week, it was because I'd had no sleep and was just coming back from a um, a series of extremely long plane flights starting in New Zealand and going via Hong Kong and Toronto to um, New York. Anyway, the thing I learned hanging out in New Zealand and Hong Kong, is that everyone has a Huawei cell phone. Mm-hmm. It's unbelievably ubiquitous. Um, the minute you leave your sort of American bubble, especially if you go to the Pacific Rim countries, um, it's Huawei everywhere. And their new phone, the Mate 10, is a really amazing phone. 
like where would it fall in the scale of phones we're familiar with here in the it's, US? It's, it's, it's essentially an iPhone equivalent. It's, really? But it's yeah. not just an iPhone equivalent. It is definitely better than the iPhone 8. And it is, there are some things it does better than an iPhone Yeah, it has 10. a different type of chip, this proprietary chip that's supposed to be far better for artificial intelligence, but also for video. Interesting. And how much... And it costs, it, it costs about the same as an yeah. iPhone 10. Okay, so mm-hmm. it really is an equivalent. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, but obviously, like all Chinese manufacturers, they have a, a range of phones, many of which are much more affordable. Mm-hmm. And the one thing that Huawei does better than any other telecommunications equipment manufacturer is make very good, high-quality stuff just way cheaper than anyone else. Because when you have a tremendous amount of government subsidies and they will pay for all your research and development, that's a lot easier. And it spends more on R&D than almost anyone else. It's, it's got this huge multi-billion dollar R&D budget. But that is subsidized. Of course, it? yeah. Okay. And they get cheap loans. Yeah. And so they have basically managed to get this dominant position, not just in consumer cell phone handsets, which Mm -hmm. is the most visible thing, but in many ways, more importantly, in the sort of cell tower, if you want to call it that, infrastructure, the the 4G, 5G, LTE networks, which are now global, they are building that. They are the dominant force in telecom equipment. I I was going to say when I'm... Before we were coming into this week, I was not super familiar with this company. But when I started reading about them, they immediately reminded me of kind of the Nokia of old. Uh, That Nokia used to be this Mm -hmm. company that was dominant in handsets. They defined, you know, what a cell phone was in the 90s and early 2000s. At the same time, they also had played a a crucial role in building out the initial cell infrastructure that we have, wireless infrastructure. And and as Nokia has waned, Mm -hmm. Huawei has waxed. Mm -hmm. And what you now get, if you you look at the American big cell phone companies, Verizon and T-Mobile and all of those, and they are buying a lot of Nokia equipment. And the Nokia equipment is way more expensive than the Huawei equivalents. And also, frankly, not as good. Yeah. So the interesting question is, if Huawei is so cheap and so attractive, and if um, the people who are dealing with them say, oh, my God, their customer service is amazing, anything you want, it just gets done immediately, it's so much easier than dealing with Nokia and people like that, why is it that American companies are just not buying this equipment? Well, two reasons. One, the political cost is just too high because there are legitimate national security concerns because when you're talking about these large private Chinese companies, they are they work very closely with the government. So the idea that there is a like, you know, a a strong wall between there, there just simply isn't. For example, Alibaba literally has a Chinese like police post on their campus. So, again, these national security concerns are not paranoia. And then the other really major concern is that idea of not a level playing field in the tech sector, that there is an argument to be made that we don't have the same opportunities to invest and bring products into China that we would potentially be allowing them to have in our markets. So we would be almost putting ourselves at a disadvantage. Yeah. And we should say... But, but who's well, we here? Are there American companies in this market? I mean, what happened to Motorola? I feel like they used to do this and they don't anymore. I mean, I guess Google with its handset business. I don't want to interrupt you, but should we mention the news hook that we're talking about? Okay. A quick a quick background to the news hook here is that AT&T was 
all set to announce that it was going to sell the Mate 10. And that was going to be a huge, like, this is going to be Huawei's huge introduction into the mainstream US market. And then at the very last minute, that announcement unraveled. It didn't happen. And Huawei still has no real foothold in the US. Yeah. And at the same time, what we're saeing is that, you know, not only can they not sell their handsets, but only very, very small wireless carriers, kind of regional companies are daring to use their mm-hmm. telecom equipment. It's like people like a, like a company out in Northern California that doesn't really have to worry too much about geopolitics is right. willing to do it. But the bigger ones just no, it's a no go. Yeah, because if you're a tiny little company, the government doesn't really care. You can fly under the radar. But there is legitimate concern that if you had some of the major carriers using a lot of this equipment that potentially hasn't been tested to see if there is any back and back doors that the Chinese government could use potentially for national security concerns or potentially for corporate espionage. That's part of the reason that the U.S. government, both Democrats and Republicans, are concerned about this. Yeah. And I mean... You have to repeat that word again, espionage. It's Spying is probably the biggest concern here. Uh, several years ago, U.S. Congress put out this report basically saying, no, companies should not use this technology because there are so many uh, ways that – there are so many ways that the, the China's national security system or state could insert hardware or software into the products that would then allow them to spy. Um, and I was looking at this report and it's like, how much of this is just fear mongering? And it, it didn't look like it didn't look like some BS piece of grandstanding by Congress. It, w- mm-hmm. it was pretty lengthy. And at the very beginning, what they say is nobody in China would even answer our questions. They would not engage us. They would not explain anything. We had to kind of go around and dig and find former executives and find other people who had experience in this pl- in this field. And there are just so many red flags. And so in Britain, what they do is they allow Huawei to have operations in Britain, but then they also have like a permanent outpost of MI6 basically in or some or the the British national security state taking everything apart as it's being manufactured and putting it back together again and sort of making sure that way that nothing gets inserted, which I think we can all agree sounds like it might probably perhaps be helpful, but is not going to, you know, Something might slip through. Yeah. And also just <laughs> very that, inefficient. And, yeah. and it's inefficient. So the thing which strikes me about all this is that the U.S. has not only very high broadband costs, like we pay $40, $50, $60 a month for broadband internet, whereas the rest of the world pays like 10 um, But it also has very high monthly cell phone costs. And, and so mm-hmm. your data is way more expensive in the U.S. than it is in the rest of the world. And a large part of that is that we have much less competition. But another part of it is that we are being essentially forced to buy much more expensive equipment. Yeah, and that is the downside here. Like you're you're balancing national security concerns against the fact that we are using more expensive and not necessarily as good equipment for our infrastructure. I, I don't know if there's like a satisfying answer though, right? Like how do you? But I mean, like, the question well, is like, like how what? many billions of dollars do we need to spend in terms of excess monthly? cell phone bills before it's like okay fine like you know our privacy is an illusion anyway what exactly are we kidding ourselves this is i'm going to say that there is a difference between the the concerns we have about privacy in the united states and if you're talking about the concerns about privacy in china i do think this is a legitimate concern and 
I also think it's important to remember, again, that, yes, I would be totally for allowing more competition from Chinese companies if they allowed the same thing and they don't. And I think that's something that we should consider moving forward. It doesn't make any sense to me to allow a tremendous amount of like advanced technology from China to come in if they're going to continue to shut us out. I, I kind of agree with you, I think, because Felix, you're asking what's the equivalent thing that China's keeping out of their market. And I don't think you have, you can think about it in terms well, of no, equivalent I'm not products. That. There, I think there, it's, there are lots. I yeah. mean, yeah, certainly in, on the consumer level, they don't allow Facebook. They don't yes, allow exactly. Like, well, and, you, and they use national security concerns essentially to keep our, what you might call our national champions, which is kind of but ma- I'm, a but, bad framing for, but anyway, our... our no, the so cybersecurity law that they passed means that if you are a any type of IT company working in China, you have to buy Chinese technology and you have to store all your data about Chinese consumers on that technology so the government has access to it, which now Apple is actually doing. So, okay, so as a coming at this from an economic perspective, if you're a trade economist, um, what you would say is that if there's one country which is giving away its technology freely, um, like China, and then there's another country which is um, you know, and then that same country is refusing to allow other countries' technology to be used to, to be used, and the loser here ultimately is China. And that, um, you know, that the the United States, by getting the best of this deal, should just be using all of this amazing technology that the Chinese government is paying to develop, and and sort of laughing that China doesn't get to use all the. American equivalent technology. Like, it gives America an advantage if we use it. It gives America no advantage if we don't use it. Well, I would perhaps agree with you, except that in China's Made in China 2050 plan, they explicitly lay out their plan to gain total market dominance in these advanced manufacturing and specifically talk about strategic investments to gain more access to cutting edge technology, which we can also assume could be gained in other ways than just from acquisitions, to then not only move up the supply chain from where they currently are, but to onsource the entire supply chain so that essentially the Chinese market is closed to foreign imports, except for just like commodities and raw materials. And everything. You're using Chinese components to make Chinese products. That is the only thing Chinese can buy and that the rest of the world will just have to use their products and they won't import anything from us except materials. Like they're, They've been fairly explicit about that. And I think that although I am a big believer in open markets and open borders, I think that this is something we have to consider as we make economic policy moving forward. Right. And I, I'm just saying like, who who does that harm? If you look at that well, kind you of think about policy, national secu- you have to think about it in terms of national security. Okay, what well, there, the there, eco- okay, like the national security question we we've talked about. Economically speaking, the big harm to that policy is done to China, not to the rest of the world. The rest of the world benefits from still using Chinese technology, and I will say that you know China has talked about spending literally one hundred and fifty billion dollars, I think, on AI R and D, um, which is a probably an order of magnitude greater than what you're seeing anywhere else in the world. At some point, we're just going to have to use Chinese technology because there is going to be no alternative. Yeah, I mean, I think you're now getting into the questions about like how, you know, how do 
countries benefit from trade if you essentially outsource one kind of technology where do you move on the supply chain and traditionally it's like okay yeah so we allow china to deal we we allow china to do all of our manufacturing for us we handle design okay so what do we do once if we give up on designing like if we give up designing tech uh we will find some other high value added thing to do you know, I don't know what that is. I don't know where the U.S. economy goes if we keep just handing off lower and lower parts of no. Of the that's, that's that's not so my that, argument at all, Jordan. Well, what no, I'm, but that's that's what saying China's attempting to do. No, so, no. What but, I'm but, saying, no. I th- I feel like that's exactly wrong. Well, they they are. They're trying. Like that's that's Anna's point is that their goal is to essentially close their market and be the exporter of all yeah, this no, technology no, that, that, to the no, world. Absolutely, they want to export a bunch of technology to the world. Yeah, totally agreed on that. Yeah, we don't really export much of value to China anyway. Totally agreed on that. Yeah, we, but services. The, yeah, we do. There's, but the but. the big picture is that if they're creating valuable stuff yeah. and, and doing that all in-house, as it were, and then the rest of the world gets to benefit from that stuff by using it, that's good for well, our so then Okay, question, well, wait, one no, thing. Me, let, oh, oh, sorry. Um, well, I was just going to say, back to my point before, is that we are also... I think Huawei is actually a very good example of how as they are doing that, they are sort of eroding the rest of the world's ability to even compete in these markets. It seems like it's not just that um, they are handing it out and the rest of the world is saying, great, we benefit. It's also Nokia has fallen behind, Lucent has fallen behind. Those companies seem to be on the wane. And all of the know-how in this field seems to be concentrating in China and this one company where they have successfully moved up the value chain. So I think there is some danger in saying, okay, let's accept this gift from China and then accidentally allowing that expertise to erode everywhere else in the world. Agreed. If we were accepting their technology and this was simply a part of China liberalizing their markets and us having access to cheap, good products, I think there most people would be okay with that. The concern here is A, what can those products actually potentially allow the Chinese government to do? And then the longer term idea that if we continue to allow this without expecting anything in return, we could long term be putting ourselves at a serious disadvantage. Reboot your credit card with Apple Card, the only credit card designed for iPhone. It gives you up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase. It's real cash that never expires or loses value. Apply for Apple Card in the Wallet app on iPhone. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Daily cash is available via Apple Cash Card issued by Green Dot Bank, member FDIC, or as a statement credit. Terms and more at AppleCard.com. Okay, let's stay on cell phones. Um, Anna, I don't understand this at all, so I'm going to have to have you explain it to me. Um, something, something, children getting ex- <laughs> a, a, a distracted, something, something, shareholder activism, Apple something? <laughs> yes. So, uh, Janet Capital and Kelsters, which is the uh, pension fund for California teachers. And Janet Capital is, is a rapacious private sector hedge fund. Uh, yeah, he- yeah, exactly. That is far more known for the type of shareholder activism that involves, like, firing people. They, <laughs> they wrote an open letter to Apple, um, arguing that Apple needs to really look into iPhone addiction because it's having really negative consequences for children. They're more distracted. They have a higher rate of suicide. They're less empathetic. And this is and this is iPhone addiction specifically among children. That's mostly what they're talking about. Yes. And is this specifically 
iPhone addiction or is this phone addiction? It's phone addiction in general, but I think obviously because the iPhone is dominant in U.S., it makes sense that they would start with Apple. And also as a publicity stunt, frankly, it makes sense to start with Apple. Yeah. And what and is is there? I mean, they want Apple to look into it. I mean, can Apple then just say, "Okay, we've we're looking into it," and then they're mollified, or is there something specific that they would like to see? They've argued that they want there to be research, and then also potentially actual changes made. Like when you set up your phone, you would put in, you know, there's a limit to how much time this phone can be accessed online by, you know, whoever's using it. If you have a child, those kind of things. But you're not wrong that this is kind of a softball letter, and they don't really have to do anything. My my feeling is that what they're asking for is something that quite a lot of parents want, which is more fine more fine grained control over what their kids can do on their phones. The, a lot of parents want to be able, like right now they can sort of say or they can try and say you're allowed to use this app, you're not allowed to use that app. Um, but I think a lot of parents want to be able to say you're you're just not allowed to use your phone more than X times a day mm-hmm. or more than Y hours a day. And maybe they want to have a bit more control within apps. And maybe they want to have a bit more visibility into what their kids are doing on their phones. And none of this is very easy right now. And it's and the obvious way, the obvious place to fix that is in the mobile operating system. And there are only two people really making mobile operating systems, and one of them is Apple. So maybe it makes sense to start with Apple. And maybe Apple, just as a sort of being nice to consumers thing, would want to do this anyway. Well, and I think it's not. It's not surprising that they started with Apple because, frankly, Apple, as opposed to like Facebook or Twitter, could potentially do this without it really hurting them because they're not as dependent on hours of engagement as opposed to a company like Facebook where they're advertising what they can charge is entirely dependent and on even engagement. Facebook this week came out and said, we are deliberately making the decision to lose money which we would otherwise have been able to make um, by showing you less of the clickbait and more of the puppies shared by your friends because we understand that we are part of the problem. Yeah, I actually thought this was very funny. If you read the transcript of Facebook's last earnings call, I just found it so amusing because Mark Zuckerberg kept being so earnest about how, like, you know, we don't care if this costs us money. We're going to, you know, spend money to gain. You have more security to improve the quality of connection. And then you get to the Q&A section and every analyst is like, right. So how is this going to affect engagement numbers? How is this going to affect profitability? Does Mark Zuckerberg have any other mode of communication than just extreme earnestness just dripping just dripping sincerity well i mean it's it's, i feel like this is a big move from zuckerberg this is the first time that he has explicitly said i'm willing to give up revenues in the medium term in order to create a better product slash planet in the long term i I guess part of me just wonders we'll see whether he does or not we've kind of gone far afield but so it seems like part of this move involves kind of demoting video because you know facebook is full of all that kind of trash video content where it's just a bunch of stock images with captions underneath or or whatever the heck and some you know uh generic music playing and i i just i am curious if 
part of the reason they're doing this is they've realized that there is not really gold in them, there are hills, and that it just actually isn't really paying off the way they hoped. Or maybe it is. I, I was. I don't know. But it just I'm curious how much of it is really sincere and how much of it is this stuff wasn't necessarily the key to uh, Facebook's future anyway. Because I think you can charge higher ad dollars for video. I could you be can, wrong about but that. But I mean, I don't know. I mean, it. It seems to me that this is somewhat of a like earnest movement, but I also feel like, look, right now, if you like technology companies aren't really being held accountable to essentially anything that's going on, like their stock prices are just kind of increasing, increasing, increasing. If they start to like miss earnings targets because of these kind of things, I wonder then if they'll continue. I, I feel like there has been a real sea change in the way that the general public looks at big technology companies. And they used to be, you know, this. The, the, the harbingers of this amazing future and now they're this, these big evil like p- places you shouldn't trust and Facebook is trying to you know we'll see whether it succeeds or not it's trying to sort of get out ahead of that and Apple has never really been seen as evil as Facebook but is I think also by the same token it has been generally admired and loved more there's a lot of like fanboys out there and people oh yeah apple's great and so i think this is a little example of even apple getting caught up in the general mistrust of big tech as it should be and i would like it if they came out and and started giving people what they wanted in terms of control over um what children can do although i think the big irony here is that the people who are really addicted to their phones are adults. It's not children. Yes, what? although apparently the addiction is less meaningful. <laughs> that apparently there's actually studies to show that when children spend a tremendous amount of time on phones, it really affects their like self-esteem, their ability to function. That doesn't happen as much with adults, at so least so are, far. Are you getting into the Gene Twenge thing? <laughs> he has, so The Atlantic ran an article a while back, if you're, you've probably seen it, had did smartphones destroy a generation where she <laughs> basically argued that Gen Z has been rendered emotionally crippled by their addiction to cell phones and how they don't date and don't have sex anymore and don't go to the mall and just are sort of stunted altogether. And uh, I don't know. I mean, there's a, I, I don't know how much stock I put in the article. There, there are a lot of things well, you can I argue can, about. I it, can but. say that as someone who's most assuredly not Gen Z, um, when I did have my <laughs> really, almost, Felix, almost three weeks <laughs> Hanging out in in New Zealand and Hong Kong, I made the decision as I as I took off from from New York, um, I, I deleted Twitter from my phone. Did you really? I did. How did that I spent, feel? I basically spent three weeks without Twitter, and it felt amazing. And it wasn't just me who felt amazing. My sister, who I was hanging out with, was like looked at me and said, "Felix, I've never seen you so happy and relaxed." <laughs> and it it's. Only when you get rid of it do you realize just how kind of twitchy it makes you. No, I, I totally agree. I was recently telling a friend that I was considering a career change to something like oyster farming that I knew would not require me to be on Twitter at any time. Um, it's, but yeah, I mean, like, for I think seriously, though, the... I think the jury's out on exactly what the effect of these right. technologies are on kids. Like, the, I, you know, the uh, I think American Academy of Pediatrics used to have this rule about no screen time for your kids. Like, just don't let them go near anything that looks like a screen, which is kind of weird. Can I guess anything that's a screen you can touch. But they then kind of altered that and saying, well, if you know, limit the amount of time, don't do it before bed. And if it's educational material on the screen, then it's okay. Maybe it'll help them learn math or something. So, you know, we're still trying to figure out how how our phones are changing our brains and our children's brains but 
at the same time, I do think um, these just basic concerns about having parental control are, are valid, right? I mean, we're learning mm-hmm. things like YouTube is actually a cesspool of horrible, you know, just content that, like directed at children, um, you know, that we that people didn't even realize. And, you know, it's now coming. Parents are are, are getting tuned into the fact that they, they need to be a little bit more vigilant about what their kids do online. I guess what I'm saying is there's been a while since we've had a good old fashioned think of the children's style <laughs> panic. And maybe we're starting to enter a new one that isn't totally unmerited. Maybe it's and it'll probably go overboard at some point. But Apple could prevent it from going overboard by maybe just making some basic concessions. On also, tech. can I just say we still it is 2018 now. And we still have little parental advisory lyric. Yeah, right. On, yeah. On songs. <laughs> thanks, like, thanks, Tipper. back to like Nancy Reagan or something? No, Tipper Gore. You know the story of that, right? That's yeah, yeah. Al, Al and Tipper Gore bought the Prince album and then they like. Per, bought, shocked, shocked. And then they were listening to it with their kids and Dirty Diana came on. <laughs> and they were just like, you know, masturbating with a magazine. <laughs> and they were like, what is this? And I, b- I believe you're talking about Darling Nikki. Oh, oh sorry, Dirty Nikki. Yeah, not yeah, yeah, Dirty Darling. Diana is Michael Jackson. No, I just right? combined. God. Anyway, um, <laughs> we have gone Christ. completely off topic. I, I think, yeah, I I think we are right. We can What we can do is we can take all of the weird psychic energy that we spend trying to listen to radio edits and look at parental advisory stickers and just take all of that and put it into YouTube instead. It'll be more useful. Absolutely. Agreed. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. Numbers round! It's a numbers round. Um, okay, let me start with 0.008. Um, if you're a stock market watcher, you'll understand the concept of a price-earnings ratio. Price-earnings is just the price of a stock divided by its earnings, and cheap stocks are, what, like 7 to 10, and expensive yeah. stocks are like 20-ish. Um, there is a stock out there with a price-to-earnings ratio of 0.008, and that stock is the Swiss National Bank. Oh, yes! <laughs> it's it's awesome. Like, the Swiss National Bank made half a billion dollars in profits last year, and it has a market cap, life, cap of, like, $150 million because, of course, none of those profits go to shareholders. Um, so, but anyway, it's one of my... I just like, you can buy a stock out there with Wait, one of the could- lowest... P.E. ratios that it is conceivably Wait, possible. You can have. buy shares in the Swiss National Bank. You can. There are three um, central banks with publicly listed shares. And that, this SNB is one of them. Is that like, for financial nerds, is that the equivalent of like buying shares in the Green Bay Packers? <laughs> like if you're a football fan, like that they, it really doesn't do anything. You don't get anything out of it, but you can just be like, I own a piece of this bank. Like, exactly. I mean, with the... Uh, <laughs> So the stupid. New York Fed is, is is owned by a bunch of big banks as well, and they get I guess. nothing. Yeah, but you can't. I mean, I can't buy stock in the New York Fed. Can't, can I? You know? can't. It's not yeah. publicly listed. It's privately held. Yeah, so that's a little. But um, if you're, but yeah, if you're a central so banking nerd, you can yeah, get exactly. you can get the certificate and put it on your wall. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. 
All right. Um, Jordan, what's your number? Uh, 10. Uh, that's the number of states that had petitioned uh, the Trump administration to let them do work requirements on Medicaid. Um, and uh, the Trump administration is going to go ahead and allow them to. So they're putting some restrictions. You can't force like pregnant women to work if you're the primary caretaker of a child. I think you also can't be forced to work in hey, order to it. get Medicaid. Yeah, primary caregiver. Like if you're a single mom or like an aunt, for instance, uh, like, you know, uh, and you're taking care of a kid, it's American families are, you know, have all sorts of different structures. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I don't, it's just, Medicaid is not a program that people lounge around on, you know, loving their health insurance but, benefits. But the, the, right? the, like, the headline here yeah, is that, that in order to be eligible to receive Medicaid, you have to be working somewhere. I mean, that's, or it's going to be a little bit more complicated than that, but it's the beginnings of essentially conditioning Medicaid receipt on some sort of work, community service or whatever. It's just another way to, for people, for state governments to, you know, kick people off the program to cut what they spend on it. It's reminiscent of what they did to welfare in the nineties or the beginnings of how states started chipping away at welfare in the nineties when they would do these quote experiments, um, you know, where they would bring in things like work requirements. Um, and it's, it's just, you know, I don't know. It's gross. It's like so, oh, it, it's gross that you have states that are essentially saying it, it's, you know, if you are poor, you still need to work to, for people to cover your health care. Well, I think we've tr we are most of the country is moving in the direction of saying health care should be a right. And Trump is doing his best to say, no, it is not a right. OK, but, yeah. but politics to one side, yeah. what we're seeing is, I guess, a rollback. I guess my question is, there was this massive expansion of Medicaid yeah. under Obama. I mean, a huge expansion. Uh, to what degree, uh, in terms of like... It's not going to be huge in numbers. It, it's not going to be nearly... The, the rollback that we're seeing is going to be very small in proportion to the expansion that we saw under the ACA. Yes, but it's, it, is, it is. And if you look at you know the the exceptions they are carving out things like okay if you're like a single mom or something and or if you are ill you know you're medically frail i think is one of the exceptions um that's why most people don't work if you look at why the poor don't work in america there are surveys about this that the census takes every year it's people aren't just sitting at home twiddling their thumbs usually there's a good reason why they're not working so most people out of a job are not going or like you know are are going to fall into one of those buckets where they should be able to still get Medicaid. The problem is it's going to add all sorts of bureaucratic hurdles, mm -hmm. and it's probably going to just discourage people from get, going to the program because of that. It's going to add confusion. It's well known that adding these sorts of conditions often discourage poor people from seeking benefits just because they don't exactly know whether or not they qualify sometimes. Um, it's, it's just unnecessary. And in the end, again, it's a philosophical issue about whether or not we are a country that thinks healthcare is a right or not. And Well, I mean, I think we know yeah. the answer. Well, no, but we are moving towards <laughs> that and the and you still have these conservative states that are hanging on to this idea that no you have to earn the right to you know go see a goddamn doctor and it's it's offensive yeah and actually kind of building off of that is my number which i don't usually do domestic numbers but this number i saw reported in a number of places and i just found it very disturbing my number is 15 so many people have probably seen reports that the life expectancy in the u.s has declined again and normally when you look at it the decline seems so small that it's easy to be like well we know there's an opioid problem but if you look at the difference between the life expectancy of a man in the top one percent or in the bottom one percent the difference is 15 years mm -hmm. lifespan inequality is a real thing right like that's 
I mean, that's a teenager. That's a child. I mean, like that's enormous and incredibly disturbing. One part of that that complicates that stat is smoking, a big part of it. And I, I actually consider this a public health failure. Mm-hmm. Um, but a huge problem in the United States is that rich people stopped smoking and poor people did not. And that has effects in terms of numbers like this, lifespan, but also things like our, our medical sp- – the government's medical spending. It, it has repercussions everywhere. Um, and – you know, if the U.S. took public health seriously, which we frankly do not as a country, not just our health care uh, insurance system, but public health more generally, we would be fighting this harder. Agreed. And also just to go on that, because we also know that part of this is because of the opioid addiction. And obviously, yes. when you have prime age men dying, that's going to because they're younger skew and bring the statistic down. Yes. But if you look at what we actually have to spend to fight the opioid addiction, it's just it's a joke. Yeah, it's nothing. Um, so let me come up with a spending number, which is $37 billion. This is uh, my favorite example of the effects of Trump's fiscal policy on, I guess, the public fisc. Um, $37 billion is, according to estimates from Deutsche Bank, the amount that Berkshire Hathaway's liabilities have been reduced as a result of the Trump tax bill, um, which basically means the one thing that Warren Buffett cares about more than anything else in the world is his book value. Mm-hmm. Uh, share price can fluctuate up and down for reasons totally out of his control. But the thing which is totally within his control is the book value. And he always says, judge me by my book value, judge me by how fast it's growing. His book value went up $37 billion overnight just because of this tax bill. He's not even a Republican. <laughs> he was anti-Trump. That's, nope. where, that's where the benefits started accruing, rather than, obviously, um, poor people. Yes. So I think that's it. I think that's it for us this week. Thank you for listening to Slate Money. Uh, keep those emails coming on slatemoney at slate.com. Many thanks to Dan Schrader. Go listen to Whistlestop, which is hosted by a chap called John Dickerson. Apparently, he has to get up very early in the morning these days to go on the telly. Um, But notwithstanding that, every two weeks on Wednesdays, he will put out a little podcast for you fans of presidential campaign history. Uh, It's called Whistle Stop. Check it out. And we will talk to you next week on Slate Money. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad... To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai.